0: Show me someone who believes in anything, and I will show you a fool. I meant what I said on Goth, Avon. We are not going to use Star One to rule the Federation. We are going to destroy it. I never doubted that. I never doubted your fanaticism. As far as I am concerned, you can destroy whatever you like. You can stir up a thousand revolutions. You can wade in blood up to your armpits. Oh, and you can lead the rabble to victory, whatever that might mean. Just so long as there is an end to it. When Star One is gone, it is finished, Blake. And I want it finished. I want it over and done with. I want to be free. Sooner or later we're going to drop into one of these holes in the ground and never come out. Sooner or later everyone does that. Well, as you always say, villain, you know you are safe with me.
1: Hello, and welcome to Spacefall, a Blake7 podcast. Now, we're releasing this latest episode in the wake of the sad news that Paul Darrow passed away on June the 3rd.
2: Yes, we will be talking about Trial at a moment, but this is a small little tribute to one of the stars, if not, I think in most people's opinions, the, the star, star. Yep. of the series that we will gather to uh, to chat and listen and, and talk about.
1: Mm. Avon, I think... And, and indeed, Paul Darrow probably are the character and actor that come to mind as soon as you think about Blake 7.
2: Yes, he is to Black 7 what Spock is to Star Trek, what Tom Baker as Doctor is to Doctor Who. Yeah.
1: We've mentioned, obviously, during the podcast that there are some very good actors in the series. We've highlighted Gareth Thomas's work, Jacqueline Pierce,
2: Michael um, Keating's been a real revelation in this podcast. Yeah, so he
1: has, as we watched the series this last time. But one thing I think and it struck us both watching the series this time around... Is just how quickly Avon becomes the most popular character and really starts to take centre stage.
2: It is. It's something that, as a boy watching for the first time the series, he was the character that I latched onto, and mm. and was almost dismissive of Blake when I was young. Yeah. As I've grown up, I've learned to really appreciate what Gareth Thomas is doing that character. Really appreciate it, but it's never been at the expense of Avon. No. In my regard for Paul Darrow's performance.
1: No, I get the impression he very quickly works out that he's got the best part and really just goes for it.
2: Yeah, and we've mentioned it before, but it's worth repeating, that dynamic that Paul Darrow, the actor, and Chris Boucher, the script editor, had Mm. between each other, they clearly got each other's sense of humour, they clearly shared each other's interests, they got on.
1: They shared love of Westerns. Yeah, Yeah.
2: And, and so Chris Boucher was very happy to write for this character, and Paul Darrow was very happy to deliver Chris's lines.
1: Yes, and then Terry Nation later said... He didn't realise he'd written him so well.
2: But... <laughs> but yes, without diminishing anybody else involved in the series, you really can say that Paul Darrow is the most important, pivotal, memorable part of the show. And as such, is a very important part of our enjoyment of the show and our memories of the show.
1: Oh, for sure. And I guess the other thing that's kept that relationship to the show is, of course, he was the one who maintained the closest association with Blake Seven afterwards. And in some ways, became a bit, proprietary actually towards the series
2: yeah it's a wonderful thing there are so many actors and actresses involved in science fiction particularly who sometimes for genuine fear of typecasting sometimes out of actual embarrassment Mm -hmm. actively try to disassociate themselves with series but Paul Darrow was completely not that guy whether it was spruiking the show on BBC television on other shows whether it was doing interviews meeting fans Mm. Paul Darrow was always happy to do it for
1: sure it also went to the point really where anytime there was a revival mooted he really was the center of that as well I mean Terry Nation's treatment for how you could continue the series involved Avon pretty much all the fiction and everything I've seen including the stuff Paul Darrow wrote himself obviously yep. post the end of the series all had Avon really as the focal point even when the rights were purchased by Blake7Media, I think they're called these days, who were also keen to revive the series. Again, initially, all their stuff would have involved Paul Darrow.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And even Fanworks, he was very happy to be involved with. You go back to something like the fan productions of stuff like Logic of Empire, oh, yes. Marcus Kane. you know... Yeah, Paul, even Caldor City. Even Caldor City, yeah. Paul Darrow had no obligation whatsoever to go and do these... In inverted fan, commas, but, and,
1: I mean, are know, Basically, fan production.
2: fan production, yeah. Very, very good production. Yeah. But just fans making something because they love the show. He came in, and not only was he appearing in them, he happily did it, and he was a wonder to work with by all accounts. And mm. look at some of the stuff that, you know, some of the fans like Alan Stevens, who was involved yep. in that, have written about working with Paul Darrow on those. Mm. And, yeah, really, really effective. And plus, of course, he's back for Big Finish. Back for Big Finish. He's written novels about the show. Yep. You look at Avon, A Terrible Aspect, and you could generously say there that he takes the Western aspects of Avon to a extreme, probably beyond what the show would do. Yes. But, but you can see there, again, the love of the character, his creation of backstory for the yes. character.
1: Whatever else you can say about his writing, look, his love for the series and his love for Avon does come through.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And his
1: pride, really, I think, in having been that character.
2: Although many actors are sometimes embarrassed, as I say, about some of their roles in these things, many actors don't get a career in acting, let alone they get a part that 40 years later, people still walk up to them in the street and say, you're that guy, aren't you? Yes. And I think Paul Darrow was very, very proud of to at least have had that moment in his career and to have been that guy. Let's not forget, when Blake Seven was going out, this wasn't like a niche, cult little backwater show. This was getting 10, 11 million viewers sometimes. This Mm. was a big deal. in. It was.
1: Even if people within the BBC and indeed so-called drama critics wrote it off really as this sort of dinky sci-fi show.
2: Yeah, it was a big deal in the UK.
1: Now, of course, he did do other work other than Blake Seven, He had an extensive career covering television, stage, he was in films, voice work, uh, video games. Yes. Now, obviously, for Doctor Who fans, look, he was in the series
2: twice. He turned up in my personal all-time favourite Doctor Who story, The Silurians.
1: Yeah, and probably more infamously, (laughs) uh, alongside Colin Baker in Time Lash.
2: And is by far the best thing in Time Lash. And as Paul Darrow says, turn off once his character dies, nothing good happens afterwards. And it's kind of true. And it is true, yes, it is. (laughs)
1: And, look, I do remember watching various things on TV where he'd turn
2: up and you're like, cool, Paul Darrow. I similarly have memories of the late 90s when I would have been a teenager and the rest of the family watching Pie in the Sky, which was, a, got to say, a little bit too twee for me. Oh, yeah. But walking past and seeing that Paul Darrow was playing the bad guy for that episode, and, OK, well, I'll stop and watch this one then.
1: <laughs> he was eminently watchable. I mean, hell, look, you know, you probably watch Paul Darrow read the phone, really, but... <laughs> yeah. Probably one final note from me. Growing up here in Australia, we certainly in the early days tended not to get stars of our favourite programs out here for conventions or anything. Paul Darrow and Michael Keating came out here to Melbourne, indeed, for a Blake 7 convention in the late 1980s. And I have to say, certainly in my fandom life, along with having not met Tom Baker, it is one of my long-term regrets that I really didn't go to that convention, because everyone I knew who did go... Dean, he was an amazing guest.
2: Yeah, I've certainly heard that, and I certainly haven't met him and won't now. The two points that I sort of wanted to finish on were to say that you could say that 78 is too young, mm. but for a guy who lived life mm. in every way, shape, or form, you know, went pretty hard in everything he did, didn't live an exactly a politically correct, healthy life. No. I think he said actually he had his first cigarette at five or something, like <laughs> <think. laughs> Yeah, so, look, to get to 78, I think, is actually quite an achievement. Mm-hmm. And look, the final thing I'll say is that it's unusual for my cynical cold heart to you know, get too worked up at the death of celebrities. But when your favourite character from your favourite TV show, that was a big part of my teenage years, you know, yeah. a really big part. You know, when he goes, that, you know, that was a big deal for me.
1: Yeah, it was. That was a big shock. I know he had been unwell in his later years, but I did see him. Uh, he was in a special episode of
2: Pointless. Yes, I have seen that with Michael Keating. Yes, with Michael Keating. Once again, the presenters on that were like, oh my God, Paul Darrow's in the room with us. Mm. Like, this guy. <laughs> and, uh, and maybe that's our final thought, that for us and for all of them, he was that guy, he was the man. Mm,
1: indeed. So, farewell, Paul Darrow. We will miss you.
2: We will.
0: It is the day of the bounty hunter. Thieves. Killers. Mercenaries. Psychopaths. He is strongly identified with rebels you see and very popular with rabbles. they will follow him and he will fight to the last drop of their blood idealism is a wonderful thing all you really need is someone rational to put it to proper use in the end winning ...is the only safety. I have been in the service all my adult life. I'm totally
1: dedicated to my duty and highly trained in how to perform it. On Sir Castler, I I reacted as I was trained to react. I was an instrument of the service. So if I'm guilty of murder, of, of mass murder, then so are all of you.
2: Hello and welcome to Spacefall, a Blake's 7 podcast. I'm Dave. I'm Richard. And this week we are talking about Trial. This is episode 20 of the podcast. Wow. Trial is of course written by the script editor, Chris Boucher. It is directed by a newcomer, Derek Martinez. This is the first of two episodes he does for the series. Mm-hmm. Uh, now we'll just mention here, Martinez did do a number of Doctor Whos, particularly early yeah. ones. Some of the more famous ones being The Tenth Planet... Evil of the Daleks and Spearhead from Space, which has got a very good reputation for the yes, direction
1: there. Yes, I guess we've seen, what, two and a half of those, <laughs> or two and three quarters?
2: Uh, yes, that is true. First broadcast on the 13th of February 1979. Now, the ratings of this go up to 7.5 million, which is oh. a jump of nearly a million viewers. I would suspect very much off the back of Gan's death last mm-hmm. episode. There are people tuning in to go, well, hang on, they've just killed a character. You know What, what happens yep. next? And I will start by saying, I think they actually make very good use of that here. I contrast that, for example, with Doctor Who in a few years' time where they kill Adric off in Earthshock. And there is a huge <laughs> spike in the ratings in yep. the next story, with people going, oh, wow, they've just killed a character. What, what happens a, next? And What a shame it was Time flight. Yeah, they, they, <laughs> they turned it and get Time Flight, unfortunately. <laughs> but no, this is very much, I think, a lot of people are tuning in now to go, what happened next? And I guess following on from that, this is an episode that is unusual for a sci-fi series at this time, in that they have just killed a major character, and basically this entire episode is about the fallout from that, how the crew deals with that, how the characters deal with that, etc. Yep. Which is unusual and is very, very good. And what's also interesting watching this is Boucher writes here a story that I think is very entertaining and interesting for a casual viewer to tune in for, but for a regular viewer there is a lot here that actually rewards you.
1: Yes, I think it perhaps is more one for regular viewers maybe than casuals, because there is quite a bit of stuff here that I think is a lot better when you know what's been going on.
2: Oh yeah, for sure. There are definitely rewards for the regular Mm. viewer here, and it's got three threads that actually all tie together, not just narratively, but thematically as well. It's a very cleverly written episode, but we're starting to get into it. Before that, Richard, I'll be taking us through this one. So Mm -hmm. what are your initial thoughts?
1: Uh, Look, I'll start by saying this is a personal favourite of mine. Yes, it has a woman running around in a latex (laughs) bodysuit, pretending to be a flea. That plot does have its purpose. Yes. And look, the dialogue in the other plots is great. The character stuff is really good. We did say in Chris Boucher's earlier episode that he has clearly just chucked a heap of ideas into Shadow and into Weapon. But he actually lands it really well here, I think.
2: It's a lot more disciplined, this one.
1: Yes. Plus, the direction is a lot better than last time.
2: Yeah, look, that's true as well. (laughs) Look, this is also a favourite for mine. I can remember going back probably 20 years ago when a few of us were chatting about, you know, what would be your top five Blake sevens. Mm. And there were two or three that you sort of you feel like hey, you have to put in there, you know, a personal favourite, a yep. couple of the big classics. And then sort of going around and looking through and realising that actually Trial kind of deserved to be in there. Mm. And both of us sort of being like, well, actually this is better than all the other candidates. Mm. It is a really good episode. I think that some of the performances are really good. But what makes this shine, as you sort of alluded to, Richard, is the script. The dialogue here just yes. sparkles. It's really, really good. It's really clever. It's really witty. And as I said, the way that the themes of the episode actually all come together and mirror each other across three very different plot threads, I think is a very effective piece of writing. So with that bit of praise, we will dive into our analysis. So the first plot thread that I want to talk us through is the titular trial, which is, of course, the trial of Travis. So we open at Space Command. We get that lovely model shot again. And again, something that Boucher does, and I'm starting to see a bit of a pattern here I hadn't seen before, is he will start in the middle of something and with you not quite sure where this is in establishing the world. So in this case, we're opening a corridor with two Federation guards and it slowly becomes clear through their conversation that this is about a trial, Mm -hmm. that that there is a prisoner, that there is an accused.
1: As if the title didn't give it away, but yes.
2: (laughs) Maybe, maybe. In this episode, Boucher gives us a couple of Greek choruses Mm-hmm. So we start off with the troopers, Lie and Pa. Yes. And then we're introduced to the other Greek chorus, which is the return of Secretary Rontaine and Minister Burkle. Back from Sequel Coat Destroy. That's right. So again, as I say, the dialogue establishes that something's going on here. They establish that they're on Space Command and this is a very political thing that's going on. There's a lovely little detail here where Rontaine gives his passcode and goes through and Burkle goes to follow him. And the door shuts. They've raised their guns to stop him. And he, oh, no, no, Senator Burkle. Uh, uh, Burkle. Senator
0: Burkle. Head of the Information Bureau. Ex-officio member of the High Council.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And he goes through that sort of that real sense of hey, this is where the military is really in charge.
1: Yes, and it does set up probably some of the themes of the episode too when we first meet Lai and Pa, because Parr is the veteran 20-year man, and Lai is the young one who obviously, bored standing there on a guard duty, he wants to see some action. And Pa is very much, well, I've seen action, and believe me, you don't want to do it.
2: Yes, that comes through. And also that idea of looking after yourself.
1: Yes, and indeed that the military looks after its own.
2: Yes. And that the politicos don't matter.
1: Mm. Thought he was going to run for it,
0: but he didn't. You could have shot him. Top politico. Don't worry about them. Space Command runs the Federation. Reckon so. No so. And we look after ourselves. Tell that to the prisoner. Broke the rules, didn't he? Whose rules?
2: Only ones that matter. Ours. And I'll make a note here as well, we also get Burkle's proper title here, where he is the head of the Information Bureau and an ex-officio member of the High Council, which is just another nod to this idea of the way the Federation is structured. And like 1984, there is an Information Bureau, Mm. which I think it is implied is a disinformation bureau.
1: Yes. Well, indeed, it ties into his earlier appearance in Cigler Cake Destroyed, because he does say specifically there that he's been putting a blanket ban on news broadcasts and everything of Blake and Blake's activities.
2: Yes. We're then introduced to Seymour,
1: yes. Fleet Warden General. From the Galactic 8th Fleet.
2: Yes, and there are references later in the dialogue to him and his highly polished flagship. And again, with very little dialogue, Boucher establishes what sort of a guy this is. Because whereas the other characters didn't know what they were doing or they messed up security stuff... He just walks in, he gives his lines, he goes through, he clearly knows his stuff, yep. he clearly is in command, not just literally, but figuratively as well. Mm-hmm. And the way the troopers are also like, wow, you know, it's like we just walked past Nelson or something. Very
1: much so. Leading into the trial itself, it of course does set up the idea that having a figure like him there adds this whole other level of respectability to the trial, that the verdict is not going to be questioned.
2: Yep, this is going to be a big deal. At this point, we still don't know who's actually on trial, Mm -hmm. and we cross to a conversation between Servalan and what we take to be a participant in the trial. Mm -hmm. Now, the way they're having a conversation there all about how it's going to work and everything, you would actually assume that This is the prosecution official. Yes. Because they're all talking about getting the verdict that they want to get. Yeah. So we establish that. And it's only now that we see that it is Travis who is the prisoner and he is on trial.
1: Now, one slight sidestep here. The guard captain that brings Travis into the courtroom apparently had more lines initially, including a couple of scenes where he's talking to both Pa and do Travis. They were cut, which I think actually is probably quite good, because he is not the greatest actor. Prisoner way.
2: and Escort are reporting as... what oh, he's terrible, isn't yeah. he?
1: Yeah.
2: I was about to say <laughs> that maybe his lines were cut let's saw that one.
1: Well, maybe, but yes, he is not the greatest actor, I'm sorry.
2: No, no, he's not. So let's just talk about the fact that Travis is on trial. We said in our last episode, talking about Pressure Point, that there was a moment in that where Servalan puts herself on the line for the first time. Yeah. And now she can't just rely on using Travis as a scapegoat. She's boxed in. She
1: is now responsible for what's happening. Yep.
2: So the fact that now she needs to detach herself from Travis by getting rid of him mm-hmm. and doing it through the trial, I think is a really nice development of the character. And it's very effectively done. And indeed, there are the conversations through the episode about why that happens. We'll talk about that more in a moment. Now... Travis is on trial for a breach of Gen Con 1, mm-hmm. which I assume is Geneva Convention 1, or a reference there too, yep. for the murder of 1,417 civilians on Zircaster. Now, there's a bit of discussion here, and we'll make our regular tribute to the Making Black 7 to a defeat at this point for a discussion that ah, ah. they actually hosted on this. In Seekler Kate Destroy, Travis is suspended pending a trial for masking civilians on Auros. Yes. Now, Chris Boucher was apparently asked about this difference in planets. Mm -hmm. And he said, look, it could be that I was trying to go for the fact that Travis has done this a couple of times. It could be for the fact that I was going for one that was outside of Cerviland's period as Supreme Commander. But he admits it could just be that he forgot.
1: Yes, or he didn't actually like the name Oros. (laughs) Yes. Yes.
2: He can't remember which it is, but it's one of those.
1: Well, I guess, going back to Seclocate Destroyer, they do say that there are other unfortunate incidents on Travis's record. True. Which clearly would involve this one on Sir Casta. I sort of took it to mean that she has deliberately chosen one that's probably outside her watch, yeah. so nothing sticks to her. I mean, they do make the comment about slime sticking. So she gets to dispose of Travis, and there's no blowback on her because it's something that she wasn't responsible for. No, if
2: it was the one on Oros, they could say, well, hang on, you're the one who brought him back for suspension. Yeah, that's right. I think it does work, but it is amusing to think that it was just Chris Boucher, (laughs) not remembering. Again, a reference to the way back, just in the way the troll is set up and the way it's done with the computer program. Now, at this point, we obviously worked out that Major Thania, who we saw earlier... And assumed was the prosecution officer, is actually Travis's defence officer. Mm. And what we start to see here is really clever in the way that Thania is playing games, and we have Rontaine to explain it to Burkle, and therefore to the audience. Playing for time.
0: And playing for Servalan, the computer will find Travis guilty. There's no doubt of that. But those three are responsible for the sentence. So? So, uh, after hearing all the blood-spattered details... They'll vote for the maximum penalty.
2: And I love the way that she's making it really, really credible. It's all about Thania looking as though she's being an efficient and effective defence officer. Yep. But all the time she's actually planning to damn Travis as far as she can. And the example that's used is she wants to have all the death certificates of the 1400... Killed civilians, red. That's right. Now she plays it as well. I want to challenge that evidence, and I'm sure that if we saw the lawsuit, there'll be lots of objections. No, you can't count that one, that one. And it would look as though she's trying to do her best for Travis. But as Rontaine points out, it's just about showing every like nasty, blood spattered detail. Yep. So that the officers who formed the sentence go, this guy's just a bastard.
1: Yep, very much so.
2: It's also stated overtly at this point that Servland is getting rid of Travis because there's going to be an official inquiry into the, into lake, the affair. lake affair. Yep. yep.
1: And the fewer people who can give evidence, the better. As we discussed, she's obviously a political appointment, not a military one. So it is very much a case that, yeah, she needs to really make sure that, again, no slime sticks.
2: Yes, and again, this idea that if there's going to be some sort of an inquiry, there is a population out there beyond the drug-depressed masses who actually would hear this inquiry... And care. And care, and that would put pressure on the administration. Mm -hmm. So, again, there are people out there that, as we've speculated before live in this Blake-7 world, particularly on Earth, and they like to pretend that the Federation is this nice, benevolent organisation that their conscience has let them live with. And if the Federation is seen by them to have gone and be as oppressive as we know it is, that's a political problem for them. Mm -hmm. So they have to deal with Travis and deal with Blake. Yep. But again, we get that lovely voucher characterization as well. So after Burkhal and Rontane have their conversation, as they're walking out, they get that conversation about how terrible the food is on Space Command, which, again, it doesn't need to be there, (laughs) but it just reminds you that these are real characters and they're real people that have this job, and then when they knock off, they go for dinner and complain about the food.
1: Yes. (laughs)
2: Now, Richard, there's a lot of talk here. In fact, I think it's three separate characters at some stage refer to Travis either being mad or being a psychopath. How do you read that? Because I've got a theory, but I want to hear your view first.
1: Well, it's obviously incorrect, because as the episode unfolds, Travis is clearly several jumps ahead and knows exactly what is going on and exactly why he's on trial. Yes. And exactly what the expected outcome is.
2: Absolutely. I totally agree. I think that it is all sold as people have completely misunderstood and underestimated Travis Mm. and as you say he's ahead of them the whole time one of my favorite scenes of the episode is the scene where Pa comes into chat to Travis in this prison cell and there is that moment of loyal officer faithful trooper yep no it's not that and you know he just wants to buy him a drink and all the rest of it now when I first saw this when I was younger I thought there must be something really subtle and clever going on there but I think it really is actually very unsubtle and it is just Thania wants travis to get completely drunk so that she can get some some stuff out of him
1: yeah she really is giving him the drink in hope that he'll get drunk and it'll drop his defenses yeah and he'll actually tell her what he's got planned par obviously i think he actually says to Thania, look i didn't do it for you yeah It is really a case, and he has his little thing about you could rely on Travis as an officer not to get you killed unnecessarily. Yes. And Parr obviously clearly has worked out too. This is an inquiry. Travis is going to be found guilty. He knows Travis is going to be sentenced to death.
2: Yes, he broke the rules.
1: Yes, that's the thing. So, you know, the least you can do is slip him a drink.
2: Yeah, and again, the way that Brian Croucher and Kevin Lloyd circle each other in that Mm. scene as well, you get that tension when neither of them quite trusts the other. They're both looking for hidden motivations. Travis asks Pa to have a drink first just to make sure it's not poisoned. Yep. But then I assume what we're meant to take as having happened is that Travis does have a swig from it, but knows that it's her plan to get him drunk, so just has a swig, then puts the bottle down, and he's waiting for her?
1: Well, I don't know. He's clearly waiting for her, but the bottle appears to be empty, so I think he has actually... This is really good stuff, so he has actually knocked it all back. But again, he knows exactly why he's been sent the bottle of drink. And when she comes in, you know, he just tells her, look, get out.
2: Yes, and the final line of he's seen with Pa is another one of those very conservatively worded sentences from Chris Boucher. You can go
0: now, Pa. Oh, sir. Pa. The report, sir. No one would believe it.
2: Any more than I do. <laughs> and that just is a tiny little moment yep. but it just lets you know that Travis has worked out everything that's Yes, going exactly. You mentioned before the conversation that Pa has with Thania about why Travis was a good CO. I like that as well because that does subvert the whole harsh but fair cliché. Yeah. Where Thania sort of does the, oh I guess he was harsh but fair and he's like, actually no, he was a bastard but he didn't get you killed unnecessarily. Yes, exactly.
0: You served a full tour with Space Commander Travis, didn't you?
2: Five years, he was hard.
0: But fair. No, not often anyway. But you can always rely on him not to get you killed
1: unnecessarily.
0: He never wasted troopers.
1: That's something I suppose.
0: Major, when you're up to your neck in slime and lasers, that's everything.
1: And I guess you are starting to get here Chris Boucher's ideas about the military and he has gone on record as saying that really the idea behind trial is that the military reflects the society that produces it. So if the military is violent or brutal, that really is the society creates this sort of environment.
2: Yeah, and Pa really gets the line that bells the cat on that, Mm. where Thania says, do you think he's guilty?
1: To Papa,
0: do you think he's guilty?
2: No doubt about it, Major. He gave the order, we just did the shooting.
1: Yes, indeed.
2: Which is a really clever line, I really like that. It is,
1: and it's really, again, that... And I guess the obvious example is Nuremberg, but, you know, oh, we were just following orders. Yes, Pa knows exactly that the Federation military machine is a brutal organisation, and this is the result. The Federation wants to control and oppress, so this is the natural knock-on effect from that.
2: Yes, and the massacre of 1,400 people mm. isn't done by one or two troopers. That is done by a battalion of troops. Yes, that's yeah. right. As the trial builds toward its conclusion, we get that moment where Thani is about to open the defence case, give the opening declaration, and Travis stops it. In what is probably the most famous or notorious scene in the episode. Yep. Which is Travis's big defence speech. Which I think is actually really good. Croucher I think plays it the only way he can, which is to start small and get bigger. Yep. Does he get a little bit too big? Look, you can make the argument and, and look I know many fans who can quote the If I'm guilty of murder, of mass murder, then so all of you no. Where his cockney accent does come through. Come through. Yes it does. <laughs> Whether that's a deliberate acting choice on Crouch's part to sort of show that Travis's uh, surfaces are breaking through and the sort of the the everyday person is coming through, I don't know. Or whether he's just shouting and it's coming through by accident, I've rambled for a bit, Richard. What do you think of this whole scene?
1: Again, he obviously knows Servaland wants him dead and he says this is as quietly as he's prepared to go. He's going to make this statement, hold the mirror up to the military organisation that really... If I'm a psychopath, it's because you've made me one. Yes. My training produces these sort of individuals.
2: Yes, and I'm part of the same military that you all are.
1: Yes, that's exactly right. So it is his big moment and really the final progression of that idea about the role of the military in society. But yes, it does sort of escalate and escalate maybe a fraction far. I and mean, it's not quite uh, Peter Miles and the Silurians. <laughs> uh... well, you
0: can clear out of here, all of you crazy doctor with you and all of your military rubbish i'm in charge of this place when are you going
1: or do i have to throw you
0: out myself
2: (laughs) But, but yes look if you were doing another take you might just take those last couple of sentences down a little notch yep and it's a shame because that over the top last part really yep. does obscure what is actually a very good speech and starts yes, very Yes, indeed it yeah. is. And, of course, the
1: other thing out of that scene is that Travis knows he's going to die and then says to Thani, well, really, you should be looking over your own shoulder because the next step is to clean up the next layer of evidence around what's happened here. And, as he says, "Majors can die quite anonymously.
2: Yes. Travis has really sort of done this all to no avail. He is found guilty. But before that, we get one really good scene with Servlan and Thania.
1: I
0: warned you not to underestimate Travis. I don't think he's persuaded
1: them. I was watching Seymour. What Travis said bothered him. You were
2: watching? (sighs) Secret session or not, did you seriously imagine I wouldn't have a spy camera in there? Travis knew right from the beginning. It really is a pity he's got to die. He's so much better than anything I've got left. In there we just have that wonderful bit where Servalan is now clued on what Travis knew. Yep. And that sentence really to show Servalan is not getting rid of Travis because she wants to. She's getting rid of Travis because she has no choice. Yes,
1: she has to. And there is that real feeling, and it probably leads into the next scene where he's pronounced guilty. Travis's outburst has made her sit up and go, oh dear, there is a chance he might get off now.
2: Yes, and the way that Jacqueline Pierce plays her watching the judgement is really good because without you know being over the top or dramatic, mm. she just conveys very clearly that she is nervous.
1: And the dialogue, when they start giving the verdict, you do actually think, is there going to be a let-off here? Yeah,
2: is the twist going to be that Travis gets away with it? Yes. But well, no, they say, you made a good case, we listened to this, but sorry, even your training doesn't tell you that massacring unarmed civilians is a good thing or the right thing and they have to condemn him. And I mean, they have to because they can't buy Travis's argument because they would be condemning the entire military exactly. if they Exactly,
1: they're condemning themselves. They have to find him guilty.
2: He's described in the verdict as being a savage, unthinking animal which comes back in a moment. I'm a really big fan of the line that Croucher gets right there.
0: The Federation is run by hypocrites and supported by fools glad to be rid of you all
2: we spoke last episode about the end of pressure point where Blake is utterly defeated yeah now we see Travis utterly defeated and just slumped in the chair he's made his point he's basically said up yours but he knows he's done yep he's gone he's lost he's defeated he's yep. broken now the other plot threads sort of break in here at this point we'll talk about how they will come together at the end but as Travis escapes because of what the liberator's done there is the moment where he chooses not to shoot pa
1: Yeah, there is that moment of respect indeed. Some of us weren't hypocrites, were we par?
2: No. And then his confrontation with Servalan, where she says that savage thinking animals mm. have a way of surviving. And apparently we'll think Laking Lake Seven, that was an ad lib by Jacqueline Pierce yes. to change it from unthinking to thinking, mm. making the point that she knows what Travis has done here.
1: Now, I guess the end of the Travis Part of the story here is that he is now on the run. Servalan is already thinking a couple of steps ahead that she can use him to unofficially hunt Blake.
2: Yes, but he's also thinking the same steps ahead and knows that she's thinking those steps ahead. Yes, indeed. And that that's not going to be allowed to happen. No. And from Servilane's point of view, it's actually not a bad outcome because he has been found guilty, has been discredited. He certainly can't take part in the Blake inquiry. No. But he's still going to be out there with a pursuit ship. And look, if he gets lucky and takes out Blake, all the better for Servalan. Yeah, indeed. Next plot thread we want to talk about is what I'm calling The Liberator. First scene seven minutes in, which is a lot, even for a Chris Boucher one. Mm. Blake is planning to go down to a planet. It's not clear where this is. All that's really clear is he just doesn't give a stuff about anything. He just wants to get away. Zen mentions that there are gravitational anomalies on the planet, which, again, it's a throwaway line if you're watching the episode for the first time. If you know what's going to happen, it's actually a really good little piece of... um, Yes, it is. Yep. But then we get what is probably the... Blake-Avon conversation, certainly of this episode, possibly of this season. One of two. There's one later
1: in the episode I also quite like, but this one really sets up the dynamic, yes.
2: We've been talking now over the last half a dozen episodes about how the tension is ramping up between Blake and Avon, Mm -hmm. and Avon has been actively looking for the moment when the feeling and the sentiment on board the Liberator is such he can actually topple Blake as the leader. Mm -hmm. There are moments when he thinks he might have it, and he, no, he doesn't quite do it. Horizon, is willing to walk out, doesn't quite do it. And here's a moment where I think he's starting to think, this is my chance. And so, look, we've talked about the conversation. We'll drop it in now.
0: I'm going down on my own, Avon. It has nothing to do with you. Nothing at all. But it occurs to me that if you should run into trouble, one of your followers, one of your three remaining followers, might have to risk his neck to rescue you. And you must advise them against that, Avon. Oh, I will. They might even listen to you this time. Why not? After all, I don't get them
1: killed. True. Avon's comment here, Blake sort of snaps back with true at the end of that. You see here, Avon's comment has really touched a nerve.
2: It really is. You can see Avon just pushing and pushing and pushing. And there's even the moment of, do I keep pushing? Yes, I do. And he pushes Blake all the way. You know, you get people killed.
1: Yeah, and I guess it sets up what happens next because avon really needs not sort of just for blake to run out on them he actually needs the crew to actively reject blake yes. and reject blake's crusade
2: although if blake rejects himself mm. then that makes it easier for them to do it yes which i think is what Avon is pushing for now we get again these nice little detail of these being real people in that when villa hears kelly saying no no i'm going to go back and get you a gun He actually goes to the shelf and goes and gets it to give to Kelly, but that's when Blake asks or to activate the teleport. And it's speculated that Blake actually could be running out. Avon speculates that could be happening. Others speculate it could be happening. We really don't know what's going on at this point. And it's interesting to look at the different reactions to Blake possibly running out. Jenna is really annoyed. Mm. Not so much because of the fact he's done it, but of the fact that he didn't confide in her about this.
1: Yes, Villa is obviously sad because, I mean, I guess out of all of the crew, look, Gan was probably his friend.
2: And with Gan gone now, Villa or possibly Kelly are now the ones who are most loyal to Blake. Yeah. So the idea that Blake would walk out on him is actually something where Villa's not angry, he's sad.
1: Yes, but he does, of course, have his little thing. Gan was obviously quite a trusting soul. He wasn't expecting to be cheated at every end and turn like the rest of the crew are. You know, they're wary around other people.
2: And that leads to that really good three-way conversation where Villa says he trusted Blake completely. And it's Jenna who says, much good it did him.
1: Yes, and this really is the moment, I think, where Avon then seizes on the idea that this is his time. Welcome back to reality, Jenna.
2: Yes, and he sort of sees that as being, that's the moment where Jenna is possibly flipping from Blake's camp to Avon's camp.
1: Yes, he obviously has the thing where... By suggesting the fact that they could be incredibly wealthy, he immediately gets Villa on side because Villa can rationalise as, well, we've done our bit for freedom. But it really seems to be, yes, getting Jenner on side really seems to be the domino that he needs to fall.
2: Very much so. As part of the conversation, though, Villa sort of does the whole, you know, maybe Gambit would know what to say and... He says, gang would ask, well, did Blake leave us a message? And that's what activates the message from Blake. Now, that's a very big risk for Blake to take that somebody did actually think to ask for a message, given that none of them had until that moment. No. Blake's message is incredibly manipulative. And to me, it read like one of those political mere Kalpers where a political leader comes out and does the whole, look, I know that I made a mistake and I admit blame and all yeah. the rest of it, but I'm going to be the one to fix... You know, it's that sort of saying you're accepting blame without really doing it. And by doing it, he's sort of almost trying to absolve himself of guilt for Gan's death.
1: It's also manipulative in the sense that it forces the crew really to come back to him and recommit to him. And again, his mission to destroy the Federation.
2: Yes, he gives them a choice of abandoning him or rescuing him. Yep. Now, even if, as I think Jenner is, and perhaps Villa is, they're on the edge of we need to stop doing this freedom fighting stuff... The answer to that is not to maroon Blake in the middle of an uninhabited planet. So they're not going to abandon him. No, Jenna is actually
1: quite torn. I think you sort of get, on one hand, look, she does make the sort of slightly snarky point that Blake can't really complain because he's not there. And she admonishes Villa and Avon when they say they want to get incredibly wealthy. I think specifically Avon probably for egging Villa on.
2: Yes, and Blake's message even ends with a little bit of final manipulation where he does the whole... There's a way that you know you could emotionally get yourself out of this. You know maybe the yep. detectors failed.
0: Besides, if either of us chooses not to keep the rendezvous, then we needn't to think too badly of each other.
1: Maybe the detectors failed. But with Jenna, look, she has that loyalty to Blake, and she really can't quite bring herself to abandon him.
2: No. So Villa and Kelly buy it. They believe yep. Blake's confession. They believe Blake's mere culpa. Avon doesn't. He just says that was manipulation. What is total it? self-pity. Yeah, everything but the self-pity, that was real enough. Yeah. Jenna, I think, knows that Blake is manipulating her and mm. knows exactly what he's doing. But you're right. She's not willing to give up on him because she personally likes and feels for him.
1: She does the thing at the end where... Rather than say anything, she just walks off the flight deck, which is clearly she's made up her mind, No, she is willing to give Blake another chance.
2: But she's not willing to look a fool to do it.
1: No. You watch Avon as that scene unfolds. He's initially really smug as he actually thinks he's starting to win them over. You know, Villa clearly is quite interested in the idea of going off and becoming wealthy. Jenna actually says to him, we'll suggest something. Are we going to go or not? Yep. But then when she does that walk off the flight deck, you notice he does a damn. You know, he's lost his moment.
2: True, but he does get to have his little go at Villa and Kelly, Which only leaves one question
0: to be answered. Is it that Blake has a genius for leadership or merely that you
1: have a genius for being led? Yeah, and look, I guess probably just spending one last 30 seconds on Blake's message, you could see that Blake is quite conflicted and it's quite raw and hurtful for him. He has lost Gann. The realisation that he continued on with the mission, that the others all blame him for that, that he should have pulled out, and they are really only saved at the last minute.
2: Yeah, but Blake's first priority remains, how do I destroy the Federation? Yes. And to continue with that, he must get his crew back on site. Yes,
1: that's the thing. He is never going to let this Federation thing go. So, yes, it has to be, how do I get the others to recommit to me, and we can continue on?
2: Yes. Now, at this stage... The Liberated crew have worked out what's going on down on the planet. We'll talk about that in a moment. But they've made the decision they're going to get Blake and they realise yep. they can't just wait around for that to happen. They have to go get him quickly. Again, lots of little details going on here very, very fast. Jenna double-checks the search pattern that Avon does for Blake just to make sure. Avon, of course, knows that's going to happen and has done it properly. I'd be disappointed if you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> we get, almost as a throwaway point, Avon mentioning that the detector shield that he's built And developed, is now working and is now Mm -hmm. operable. And and Villa's lovely. And again, Chris Boucher really knows how to write Villa because he gets that wonderful deadpan. That's brilliant, Avon. Absolutely brilliant. It'll never work. (laughs) And again, Villa, as he was in Pressure Point, gets to be perceptive and gets to have some good moments. So, for example, he's just very snide to Avon. I see you've decided to be
0: led like the rest of us. I shall continue to follow. It's not quite the same thing. I don't see the difference.
2: Yes.
1: A good dig it Avon. And, and Avon indeed comes back, though, with... I didn't really think that you would.
2: <laughs> and, yeah, look, for all of Avon's smugness there, Villa has actually got it right. Yes, he has. Now, to do that, Avon has had to adapt the teleport. Yep. Or, as Villa puts it...
0: Avon adapted the teleport with his usual skill. Probably ruined it.
2: <laughs> but they do succeed in bringing Blake back up.
1: Yeah, now, one small note I did have there, and it's really a direction thing... Avon tells Callie how important it is that she watches and that she concentrates and then goes and stands almost directly in her (laughs) line of vision, so she has to lean round him to see.
2: Yeah, well, that's just Avon taking the predominant position in the room, isn't it? (laughs) There's a good scene here, and this might be the one that you're alluding to, Richard, where Avon and Blake speak very much without any illusion or, let's be honest, without any bullshit. Yep. Avon says to Blake, you manipulated them. And Blake basically says, yes, I did.
1: Yes. And you do it very skillfully.
2: Yes. And then we get, you know, that real sealer conversation yep. between them.
1: One of these
0: days they are going to leave you. They were almost ready to do so this time. Yes, I thought they might be. You handle them very skillfully. Do I? But one more death will do it.
1: Then you'd better be very careful. It would be ironic if it were yours, I have to say, that is one of my favourite Exchanges in the whole series. But... It's
2: really, really well done. And we are now at this point in the relationship between the two of them where there is no pretense. Not anymore, no. They know exactly what each other is doing. Yep. There's not a lot to say sort of, about this last part because essentially it just is you know, the little bit of action that they need to do. It's the mission they need to go on to get the team working together to sort of move yep. past Gan's death. It's very war film
1: Yeah, indeed. What death-defying
2: feat must we perform to restore our legend? It's a big target, but it's kind of an easy target. It really is. Just put the detector shield up, go in, fire the weapons once, get out. Yeah. One note there I
1: did have, just before we close this one off, and it's something we touched on, actually, in Bounty, uh, of all (laughs) scripts. Blake makes the point that all the Federation troopers and every bounty hunter knows that they're fallible. And that, again, is something that the series has never really touched on. The idea that there could actually be bounty hunters or contract killers or whatever out there actively searching for the crew. It's an area that the series never really explores. I mean, look, even Firefly had that episode where the bounty hunter guy tracks the ship and then systematically goes and takes them all out.
2: Mm. But look, yeah, the crew does end. And of course, ironically, it is Blake's attack on Space Command Mm. that actually allows Travis to escape.
1: Speaking of irony, yes.
2: And so the final thread we need to talk about is Blake and Zill. Now, yes. this, is, this is a plot thread that I think is incredibly clever,
0: uh-huh.
2: not necessarily as well done as it could be. And it is a look, it's an example of that big sci-fi concept that you just cannot do on a 1970s BBC budget. No. So Blake having left The Liberator goes down to a planet. It's Again, it's not Planet Quarry. It's a really cool jungle world. It looks hot and steamy and it's filmed really well.
1: Yeah, they've obviously, you know, gone and got the dry ice machine out to create the fog or whatever.
2: Yeah, yeah, it looks really, really good. We see Blake put out the devices. We then see they're stolen. Dudley Simpson, who we haven't mentioned for a while, but he's... Doing his really cool sort of jungle music there with the jungle drums, and you got the BBC jungle sound effects record right going. You,
1: yes, I was going to say, plus you got the jungle sound effects. Yes. Yep.
2: So it's set up really, really well, and we get here long periods without dialogue. Mm. And Boucher resists the temptation to have Blake walk around talking to himself. Yeah. He just lets the performance carry it, and we don't meet Zill until twenty-five minutes into the episode. Right. Now, look, the costume's terrible and I get what they're going for, with the way that they're acting. Yep. Look, it is a good way to do it. It makes Zill seem alien. It is a bit silly, though.
1: I don't actually see how you could have done it. I mean, now, look, Zill would probably be CGI.
2: Yeah, yeah. Andy circus or something.
1: The motion suit with the dots on it. But, yeah, I mean, look, it was probably always going to be a latex suit, given it's 1970s BBC.
2: Yeah, but we get all of that language that Zill uses about your oneness instead of your life about the host instead of the planet which you know, we don't yep. realise what's going on about being absorbed instead of killed and we start to work out what this is all about when we see Zill actually feeding on the planet where she opens it up very flea-like or very mosquito-like yes. goes in, gets some fluid, takes it out mm-hmm. and so you've got this whole idea of what we discover is one big organism so it is a host being Zil is a parasite on there Zil is all about you have to keep moving to stay alive you have to stay separate to stay alive that's right all that sort of thing, which, again, proves not to be the case. And it perhaps echoes the fact that Blake needs to be back with his crew mm. in order to survive. The liberated crew are the ones who actually confirm what's going on, that the infestation of Zills has, has got too <laughs> much, and so the planet is going to depopulate them by secreting its digestive fluid. And
1: recover the energy thus expended? By eating them.
2: By eating them. <laughs> Aurak really savers that life, he doesn't, doesn't he? he yeah. By eating them.
0: <laughs> well what's that organism doing, Orak? Cleansing itself. Killing them. Correct. And replacing the energy thus expended by eating them.
2: And you know, zeal is eventually absorbed, but mm. there are eggs that are
1: That will survive and carry yeah. on and the next generation of zeals will be born.
2: Yeah, but at a reduced number. So it's all really clever and mm. it's really eco balanced and All that sort of thing. I really like it. I think it's really clever. It puts Blake in an interesting position where he has to decide, no, I'm not willing to surrender. I'm going to survive. Yes. And it moves him past his self-pity in a really effective way.
1: Yes, he wants to go on. Yes, he's going to recommit to the cause.
2: Yes, I'm not ready to surrender anything. Played really well by Gareth Thomas.
1: And I guess, given he's now just recommitted and he's back on board and back on the horse... We will see the effects of that as we go through the second half of the season.
2: Very, very much so. The one really weak thing that I think doesn't quite work, though, is the conceit that the teleport special effect involves the cast member going white and then... The blowing out. Zill mistaking that for a hatching egg. I thought that was just a little bit too much of a conceit. But look, I get it and it works.
1: I suppose it's that last sort of explain, the last maybe unresolved bit to the audience. Yeah. If they haven't been paying attention.
2: Yeah. So, look, the Blake and Zill thread ends with Blake having confronting his actions, accepting his mistakes and deciding, no, I'm going to move past that. I'm going to go on and survive. Mm-hmm. Travis on trial. ...confronts his actions, decides, no, I'm going to move past that, I'm going to survive. And indeed, both of them are recommitting to their obsessions. Yes. Blake with the Federation, Travis with Blake. Mm -hmm. And on the Liberator, they all get to confront their views and go, no, we are recommitting as well to this cause. So each character sort of goes through a...
1: Yes, even Avon in his own way. Yeah,
2: yeah, absolutely. Each each of them goes through their own little arc and decides where they're going to end up. And as you say, takes them into the second half of this season... It's unfortunate, then, that they have to have the little scooby-doo gag at the end. Yes. Oh, dear. Yeah, dear that, idea.
1: That is very forced.
2: Very forced. Very poor. But, look, the other the three threads. As I say, they come together. They link together. The dialogue is really good. I just love this episode. I really yeah. do. If the worst thing you can say is that the BBC budget didn't quite stretch to some of the ideas, well, so be yeah,
1: it. Indeed. And, and, look, it's got a fairly lame ending. But, yes. So... Yes, now, look, we'll go into our regular segments. The first of which is guest cast.
2: Now, we'll just say at the start, Peter Miles and John Bryan's return as Rontane and Burkle. We cover them in Seaclore Destroy. Yes, unfortunately, I think, given what happens in the episode, we won't see them again. No, very sad, because they're really good here. Oh, look, anything with Peter Miles in is oh, always indeed. pretty good. But no, look, we do cover them in Seaclore Destroy. So I'll kick us off with what... I think, is the big guest name for this episode, which is John Savadunt as Fleet Warden General Seymour. This would have been a very big name at the time, and he's yes, an even he bigger name now. He's been in the Avengers, he's been in Callan, he's been in Doomwatch, he was in the Clockwork Orange. Yes, he was. He was in A Family at War. He will go on to be in several episodes of the first series of Yes Ministers, Sir Frederick, yep. the Permanent Secretary at the Foreign Office. He is the king in the pilot episode of The Blackadder. Oh, yes. Um, before being replaced by Peter Cook. In the actual transmitted episode?
1: Yeah, I'd probably have to say, unfortunately, that's one, I think, where the replacement maybe works a bit better, but...
2: Yeah, look, look, only because Peter Cook is so damn good Yes,
1: well, that's right.
2: He turns up in Jeeves and Worcester. He is in the Doctor Who story, The Visitation, for about six minutes. Yeah,
1: it it is actually surprising that's his only Doctor Who.
2: Yeah, you would have thought he'd have more. Yeah. He also played the original Monsieur Furman in the West End Phantom of the Opera. Right. Which was a you know, obviously was massive at the yes, time. Yes, indeed. But most famous, undoubtedly, for his 690 episodes of Coronation Street, wow. playing Fred Elliott from 1994 to 2006. There you go. Uh, he's still alive today, aged 80, and apparently doesn't mind writing the papers occasionally saying why Coronation Street isn't as good as it used to be when he was on it. (laughs) So there you go. Look, he's a phenomenally guest actor. I think he's very recognisable, and he does he does really good here with a small part, but one that needs to carry a certain gravitas, and he gives it that. Yes,
1: we will see him again in Blake Seven in a different role
2: and a very different role. Yes, Yes, a very different role. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Here we
1: are. The next guest cast member is Victoria Fairbrother as Major Thania. Now. I know prior to doing Blake 7, and and again, thank you to making Blake 7, she had worked with Brian Crouch in the TV series Out, and they were at Lambda together, the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art. I think she was a year or two below him. But she's married to an actor called Don Warrington, who is in a lot of stuff and is quite a well-known UK actor. Yes. And I think actually their son's an actor as well.
2: That does ring a bell, yes. Yes. Not a lot of television work, though. It's very sporadic. She was in Fraud Squad in 1969, mm-hmm. A Question of Guilt. Turns up much later in The Ruth Rendell Mysteries right. and an episode of Casualty.
1: Yeah, I think she also was in a couple of those, maybe not for Hammer, but a couple of low-budget 1970s UK horror movies Okay. as well, I think.
2: Inside the chicken suit, we have, of course, <laughs> Claire Lewis playing Zill. Again, not a lot of credits. She was in The Doctors in 1970. She did a nineteen seventy nine Quatermass. Oh
1: yes, the final
2: Quatermass. Yes, Yes, and does turn up in the Bill. Right, there you go. I'll also mention Graham Sinclair, who plays Trooper Lye. Again, not a lot of credits. He did do thirty four episodes of London's Burning as Chapman. Oh, well, he would have been alongside Gareth Thomas at some point. Uh, yep. Yes, he was in Laura and Disorder. He does turn up in an episode of Rumpole. <laughs> so we have got our <laughs> so obligatory Rumpole link this week. Yep. yep, and he also turns up in the Bill as a commander. Right.
1: And rounding out our guest cast is, of course, Kevin Lloyd as Trooper Park. Yes. Now, this is actually one of his earlier roles. Yes. And he would go on to have actually quite a long career. He is in a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff and very varied stuff as well. Yes. Of course, he's probably best known for the 400-odd episodes... He did in the bill as DC Tosh lines.
2: 453.
1: Yeah, that had a rather sad ending, unfortunately, but...
2: Yeah, for those who aren't aware, he was a very much loved and very big part of the bill. Yes. But did succumb to alcoholism and was dismissed from the show for his alcoholism yes
1: and unfortunately died i think we're talking only a week or two weeks after yeah,
2: basically after he's sacking he went on the bender to end all benders and yeah that was the end yeah
1: and unfortunately i think it was very much a case he died so shortly after he'd been released from the show that he was actually still on tv i think for a few weeks after he passed away he wasn't yeah i remember that yeah, but he is in a lot of stuff. He's in Minder. He does a few episodes of Coronation Street. He's in our Saiyan
2: Pet. Yes. He was in the Andy Cap series uh, yes. with James Bolam. He did an episode of Bergerac. Oh, yeah. And one of his more prestigious roles, six episodes of The Borgias. Oh,
1: yeah, okay. But
2: look, I mean, there are just tons and tons of credits. Yeah, he have.
1: is in a lot of stuff. Apparently, now, and again, thanks to making Blake 7, he was actually a friend of Brian Crouch's. They shared a flat together when they were young actors in the early 1970s. There you go. There you go.
2: That takes us on to Liberator Database. A couple of minor points then probably a bigger point. We do get Travis's serial number here, Alpha 15105. Right. We get the introduction of Avon's Detector Shield, Mm -hmm. which is something that will come back in other episodes. Yep. But I think the one we want to talk about here is the timeline. Now, an important point to note here is that the massacre on Zirkast is said to be three years ago. Yes. Now, that has to be pre seclocate destroyed. Indeed. Now, we can assume that if Oros and Zerkaster were different massacres, Yep. Oros was just before Seek, Locate, Destroy, Zerkaster was a nebulous Some time, time before. Sometime before
1: that, yes. Because Serbalan, I think... And we did make the point in Ciclocate, Destroy Serverland is a fairly recent appointment, probably at that point. And Oros is obviously only something that's happened very recently.
2: Now, we get a number of these sort of hints about timeline across the season. So Mm -hmm. let's bank that. Yep. And we'll come back in an end of season review and have a bit of a chat about this.
1: Yes, indeed. Because there probably is a bit of a timeline for the series to go through. But, yeah, it's probably not best to do it here.
2: No. Which takes us to... Look, it was the 1970s. A couple of serious points here and a more light-hearted one. I did know that the trial of Eichmann was 1961, so sometime before, but that is probably the first big war crimes trial of an individual, as opposed to the Nuremberg trials of a regime or a series of individuals. Interestingly, though, in the mid-1970s, you do get a number of massacres of civilians around Lebanon. You get the Tel Al-Zatar massacre in 1976, which killed up to 3,000 civilians, and Perhaps more famously, the Darmor Massacre in 76 killed 684 civilians. We know that Chris Boucher was a student of yes, Middle Eastern politics and, and read out that, so I wouldn't be entirely shocked if some of that was in his he mind. It's only a couple of it. years before yet. So I'm going to make those points. Also interesting to note, though, the concept of a planet-sized organism yes. is actually referenced in the Doctor Who story, Destiny of the Daleks, which was written by Terry Nation. Yes. And his name there, the planet Margler, and the Doctor reads that in the book The Origins of the Universe by Ulan Kaluford. <laughs> yes, so great. if we assume that this is actually the planet Margler, then that means that Doctor Who, Blake 7 and the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy all happened in the same universe. <laughs> I will note, though, that that Doctor Who story was the 1st of September this year. Right. So this did preclude it. But it was a Terranation story. There you go. So a nice little link there.
1: Now that brings us to what happened next. To be honest, this is one actually I think that wraps itself up quite neatly.
2: No, I'm pretty happy that this is not a What Happened Next episode.
1: No, really. I mean, we see what happens to Zill, and obviously the Travis part of the storyline clearly sets up what's going to happen to him across the next few episodes. But we
2: actually do see what happens next. Yes. Yes. So we'll therefore go on to What call Lines Did Chris Boucher Give Avon This Week? Mm. And there are a number...
1: There are, I mean, we've already covered a few of them and probably the ones where he's having a go at Blake.
2: The really big exchanges, yes. Yes,
1: but there are some quite good one-liners in there as well.
2: Yes, there's a line where they say the planet's not exactly a paradise and Villa comments there aren't even any people down there and Abel gets the reply, so it has at least one aspect of paradise.
1: (laughs) There is a line there where he says, stick to action, Blake, it's what you're good at. Yes. Which is a quote straight out of Butch Cassidy in The Sundance Kid. <laughs> okay. Which very clearly shows Chris Boucher finding cool lines in movies to give Avon to say.
2: Very, very much so. Avon's deadpan reply about the detector shield, can we rely on it? is, I thought we were. <laughs> and he actually gets a gag line for the episode as well, which is, after Villa having exclaimed that Avon's gadget works, Paul Darrow suddenly does this wonderful like, start. And it's enough for Blake to sort of, what, what, what's wrong? that as the description of a highly sophisticated technological advancement, Avon's gadget works seems to lack a certain style.
1: (laughs) bit of professional pride there, yeah. But
2: it's nice when Paul Darrow gets not just the lines that are really cool, but the lines that are actually a bit of a gag. Yeah. Because he doesn't get them often.
1: No. No, that was really good. Which I guess brings us to Player
2: of the Week. Well, Richard, I've been taking this through this one, so who's your player?
1: I'm going to give two honourable mentions. Okay. One was to Claire Lewis as Zill, because look, I think (laughs) running around in a garden in November or December in Britain in a latex suit, I don't (laughs) think why anybody gets into acting. So I actually thought, look, for what is a very difficult part, I actually thought she was quite good.
2: Oh, she utterly throws herself into the part and just commits to it.
1: Yeah, that was one. And look, I did also give an honourable mention to Kevin Lloyd. Because, look, par is not a big part, but it's quite an important part, and I thought he actually did that really well.
2: Yeah, that is true.
1: But I actually gave my Player of the Week this week to Brian Croucher. Okay. We said in his first two appearances that there were probably some rather uh, indifferent aspects, perhaps, to his performance. Yes. And it is well documented. He had issues with the director in both of those stories. So I thought... He is a lot better in this one, and it probably does show, maybe with a more attuned and perhaps a more sympathetic director, really what he's
2: capable of. Now, look, I agree. Brian Croucher would absolutely be an honourable mention for me. Yep. Some of those moments he has, particularly the ones where he's resigned to his fate, yep. are really good performances from him and much different to what we've seen before. Yep. But I'm giving mine to Gareth Thomas. Yep, okay. And just because we see in this episode... Just what a phenomenally good actor he really is. Mm-hmm. He carries everything from the self-pity, the manipulation, the anger, the yep. determination. Lines that could have been overly melodramatic. like You can imagine his I'm-not-ready-to-surrender-anything line being done by someone like William Chatner. <laughs> <laughs> but there are a number of actors who wouldn't have done that just as, as no, convincingly indeed. as he did. And so I'm very happy to give him the award. But yeah, look, Brian Crouch is very deserving as well.
1: Yeah, Gareth Thomas actually, he does anger very well. He really does. Yes, he does. So, there we go.
2: Yeah, look, I don't think there's much more than we could say that we haven't said already. It's a favourite of both of ours. It's yep. a really good episode. I hope that you guys enjoy it as well. Very good. So, that's the end of our discussion on
1: Trial. We'll be back next episode with Killer.
2: That's going to be quite a discussion, I think.
1: Really? Okay. Well, I actually, I'll go ahead and say, I quite like Killer.
2: Yes, this is going to be quite a discussion. <laughs> <laughs> but in the meantime, set course for Phosphoron. Thank you for listening to Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast, recorded in Australia by David Kitchen and Richard Nolan. If you enjoy our chat, please subscribe and leave a review. We can be contacted by email via spacefallpc at gmail.com. We can also be found online at facebook.com slash spacefallpc and on Twitter at spacefallpc. Richard and Dave also co-host the Goodies Pirate podcast and Dave co-hosts the Doctor Who show podcast on which Richard also appears from time to time. We'll be back in a fortnight with more Blake Seven.
0: Why did you run? Movement is life. To stop is to lose yourself and be absorbed. Is it that you are ready to be absorbed? Is oneness already a burden?